Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation has happened in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, things are really starting to get messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to say thank you to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way to our modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. If you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com backslash the messy reformation. You can also support us by sharing our content. I'm a terrible self-marketer and need your help. If you know of anyone who would benefit from listening to this content, let them know about the messy reformation. Also, let them know about our newest announcement, the Hall of Tyrannus. We're really excited about this new opportunity to disciple reformers for the CRCNA. If you'd like more information on this, head on over to themessyreformation.com and look for the Hall of Tyrannus. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Kurt Monroe. So, Kurt, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, and the church that you're at. So, I am going to start actually with where we're at. My family, I am husband to Jennifer. I am uh, the father of four kids. I've got a senior in high school, junior in high school, an eighth grader, and then a a second grader. So, we've got a decade in between the four, and so it keeps things busy around the house and trying to chauffeur everybody around and all that. So we're in that phase of life. We live in Sioux Center, Iowa, and I'm the pastor of First Christian Reformed Church in Sioux Center. And yeah, so that's that's where we're at. Midwest, small Midwest town. I grew up in a small Midwest town, but I did not grow up in the CRC. So I grew up in Northeast Indiana, small rural community there. Uh, prepared me, I think, well for life in Sioux Center and uh, Northeast Indiana, though, the most of the CRC pockets are in Northwest. So uh, mm-hmm. my wife grew up in the CRC in Gallup, New Mexico, Rehoboth. Um, so that's her background. She was my entry went to the Christian Reformed Church and kind of we had lived in Tucson, Arizona for a while. We were both teaching at a Christian high school there. And then I, I was teaching part-time Bible, part-time uh, musical theater and choral music and whatnot. And I decided, you know, I'm really enjoying teaching Bible and ended up going to Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, just to do a, I was planning on doing a two-year master's in biblical studies and coming back to the high school classroom and teaching Bible. Um, That turned into a three-year master of divinity. And I, we were, when we went to Vancouver, we were attending First Christian, or First Christian church in Vancouver. And so I discerned the call to ministry in the context of the Christian form church. And so that's really where my 
I mean, I obviously because Jennifer grew up in the CRC, knew about CRC, and really respected and admired the CRC, and that was the school we taught at was started by CRC folks there in Tucson. But it was really that call to ministry discerned within the CRC that overlapped, and that's why I'm where I am now. So, yeah. Yeah. amen. Where, uh, what church did you grow up in then? So I grew up in a church of Christ, which functionally we were, there's the non-instrumental and the instrumental versions of those. And I was in the instrumental version. Functionally, they work pretty much like non-denominational churches from my experience. I had no kind of conception that we were, you know, there's no accountability. There's no oversight from a denominational level. So we functioned more or less as I would, I tell people I'm, don't have a lot of time to explain it that I just grew up non-denominational evangelical and that typically kind of is more or less accurate. That was my experience. So that's my background. Yeah. Did you have a good experience growing up in the church of Christ? Um, My, my particular experience was fairly decent. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up without a lot of, obviously there's no confessional kind of catechesis. There's, there's no grew up without any knowledge of, I shouldn't say without any knowledge of, but with a, a lack of knowledge of church history, of good depth of theology. And so I, I think, and that's where I, not growing up in the CRC, I didn't know Dort existed. I didn't know Calvin existed. And so then I went to, did my undergrad at Wheaton uh, oh, in yeah. Chicago. And so that's where I was really, I'm still obviously American evangelical kind of experience there, but that's where I was first introduced into a greater depth of kind of theology, church history, that kind of thing. So, and, and just, yeah, that's, but so, yeah, obviously my, my, my background there is very much an American evangelical experience, but I, I had a fairly decent experience in that. You know, I think a lot of people come out of that damaged, beat up and the home that I grew up in was good as far as uh, parents kind of not adopting some of the worst components of American evangelicalism and doing a fairly good job of catechizing me, even without the aid of us, you know, actually the catechism and whatnot. So, so I, I don't have a lot of the baggage that a lot of evangelicals that you see going off into ex evangelical kind of Mm. uh, territory have. So, yeah. Well, I think that speaks a good word that uh, Willie and I have kind of seen being in youth ministry too, that, Again, you know, the parents are the primary formers of a, of a child and it, they can be, you can be, you can have poor parents in a really, really good church and those, and those kids are not going to turn out in the same way, or you can have good parents in a really, really poor congregation and those kids will still turn out really well. And so it, it again goes back to reminding all of us pastors and youth pastors that uh, like parents are the ones that God has given the responsibility for forming and shaping these kids. And they will have the most impact on them, whether, no matter what we do. Yes. And, uh, you know, going back to our, my wife and I, our experience teaching, we talk about in the CRC, the three-legged stool of mm. the church and the home and the school, because the same could be said of Christian schools. You can have an excellent Christian school combined with an excellent church, but if what's happening at home is is off the rails. It doesn't matter what the church and the school do. Uh, It's true that the the home has far, you can say it's a three-legged stool, but that home's leg is disproportionately powerful in its capacity to mold kids. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I I was trying to think as you were saying that maybe we need to, cause I'm a big proponent of the three-legged stool. I think, 
you know, is some people want to get rid of it because it's old. And I think from my experience, kids who have all three legs stay in the church, remain committed to Christ, become leaders in the church. It's a big deal. But I think you're right. It's really the the church and the school are really upholding what's going on in the home. Like the home is almost foundational, I've seen. And yeah. it's the church and the school who are really supporting and and upholding the home. And when that happens, then you really have have good stuff happening. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. You, um, and I like that reinforcing what's happening at home. That's a good way of, of putting it. Yeah. So at what point did you uh, decide to go into, when you decided to move into teaching, were you wanting to go into teaching the Bible or were you just wanting to become a teacher or what was that path? How did that path look? Oh, wow. You're asking me to dig into the depths of a history that I can't even remember myself anymore. <laughs> I, yeah. So, I mean, it's really funny. I, I ended up teaching, stuff that I wasn't at all qualified really to teach. I, at Wheaton, my undergraduate degree was in English. I had a minor in music. Wheaton makes you take 14. At that point, it was 14 credit hours in Bible, I think. So I had a minor in music and I was teaching music and I had 14 credits hour in Bible. And and that's what I ended up teaching was Bible and, hmm. and music. Neither of them really qualified to do that. So I don't, I, I landed in it. It was one of those things where the school it was really the school employed. They said, we're going to go find people rather than necessarily people who are credentialed. We want to find people that will fit with our, what we're on about. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really, really good fit at that point. Um, and so they said, and I did have interest in teaching music, particularly at that point, And then in the Bible as well, I was both of them never intended, you know, looking at the way I did my undergrad and everything that that was going to be the way that played out. But God, I think worked it that way. And I, it was really, really great when we were there for those. I was there seven years. I think I taught my wife was there for nine years. She, before we got married, she was teaching. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really good that way. It was a good period of our lives and just the, you know, and I, not to say, you know, yeah, the, the home is crucially important, but the capacity for youth groups, you know, youth pastors, you're talking about um, catechesis, uh, Sunday school, that kind of stuff. But then the, the Christian school too, to come alongside those parents and because yeah. you can do some things that the parents can't do. Right. Or you, you, you feel, they ask you some questions yeah. and you can, again, you know, you want to be careful about the way you say this in the current climate where schools are usurping parents. Um, yeah. But, but there are capacities to really minister to, to kids. Um and it was a great, great period of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, kind of in tandem with that, Kurt, I'm wondering your, your call from teaching and then into pastoral ministry kind of, you know, uh, I, I'm very curious to know kind of what that looked like in you and uh, the, that whole process, how, how you processed that. I, well, I initially processed that by pushing against any conception of a call to ordained ministry. So I, I kind of just thought, I, I don't want to do that. It's not, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I spent the first year w- when I was at Regent just saying, no, want nothing to do with an MDiv, want nothing to do with ordained ministry. Um, and then it was just kind of a process, you know, again, all of that background, I think, coming to the realization that God <laughs> was inevitably leading that way you know even even the undergraduate degree in english literature and at that point i wheaton's english department was great um teaching you to to take texts very seriously 
on their own terms, uh, interpreting them really set the groundwork in my mind for doing proper exegesis. And so that, that preparatory kind of groundwork laid at that level and then realizing, I think part of it was just realizing partway through that region experience that God had used those years teaching, realizing, oh man, I was doing way more pastoral work in my interactions with students than I ever imagined I was. And just the inevitability of it, I think it was kind of, you know, the way it works. Conversations with people um, within the church, realizing that it, it that you're doing things and you're being called to do things and you kind of at the, at some point say, Oh, stink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to shift into the MDiv and I think I'm going to have to start talking to the candidacy uh, <laughs> people at the, at the CRC. Right. So yeah. just that sense of inevitability of, of all of those things combining to, to equip you and to train you up and out, outside of the, official kind of MDiv schooling, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love those moments. I had that moment too. I mean, I never planned on being a pastor until I was like 24, 25 and I had been doing all these other random jobs and then you get into ministry and then you start looking back and going, Oh, all of those random things that I was doing really prepared me for ministry and have really set me up to be on this particular trajectory that I'm in right now. And, uh, and at the time I thought I was just wandering around aimlessly. I, I mean, I was wandering around aimlessly, but thankfully, you know, it's God who determines our steps. <laughs> and so he's, yeah, it's, it's a cool moment to look back and see how God has been just orchestrating and lining everything up for us to be where we're at. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think my case too, I just, there was no way I would have been ready to walk out of an undergraduate degree right into an MDiv, right into a minute. I needed to live. Yeah. Uh, I needed to, you know, in, in the years intervening, we we actually left for Regent right after my dad had been, um, the previous year, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. The From diagnosis to his death, it was about six weeks. Um, and so, you know, just traveling through that, spending that time in the hospital, uh, going through that, walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death, essentially, I, one of, that's one of the things I think I had to go through that. Yep. before I would be myself equipped to walk with others through that as a pastor. And so I think, you know, it's probably a lot of people, it's fine. They just go undergrad right into to seminary right out the next door, but some of us aren't mature enough. So it's really God's protecting, <laughs> protecting the flock right. from immature, inexperienced, um, ill-equipped people. And I, and I, so I'm really, really grateful for that kind of, yeah. yeah wondering what am I doing? Yeah. You're right. God orchestrates it. Amen. Yeah, I've been I've been talking about that a lot, especially and maybe it, it is especially serving in a more rural church, a more blue collar church. I feel like just the fact that I worked construction and I ran a business for a while and worked in a factory for a while um, gives me just a different level of credibility with a bunch of people. Like they know that I've been out in the world, I've lived, I've gotten my hands dirty, I've done that kind of stuff. And you know, I'm not just some like, yeah, young punk who just went through school and became a pastor, like I've lived. And it's given me a whole different ability, I think, to to interact and connect with with people in my church. And so I'm really thankful for that. And of course, yeah, I'm kind of biased. And I think that's probably a good thing. It's probably 
uh, in general, I would say it's probably good for people to be out there and to live a little bit. And I think in a recent podcast, we even talked about trying to maybe beef up the, the, the internship period of a pastor just to give them some more life experience, life training before entering the ministry on your own. And that probably could just comes from my own background of saying you need a lot of life experience to be able to do ministry well. And, uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've been thankful for that as well. Yeah. And you know, I, I think you're right. I, I said there that I think you can do it, go just right from undergrad, right into seminary, right out the other door. I do wonder though, often just, and looking at my own experience of being so grateful for the way it worked out for me, but just wondering if a lot of problems in ministry, you know, the article 17s, all those kinds of things would be helped by some, some other life experience other than, you know, you just say, yeah, well, I even think the seminary identifying high schoolers already and bringing them to the seminary, like, tell them to go get some other, you know, study biology, study, study English literature, study something other than theology. Go work in, make sure in your summers, you are working in a, a warehouse or a factory or something. And you're rubbing shoulders with non-academics. I, yeah, I, I don't know that you don't want to necessarily legislate those kinds of things, but boy, it's helpful. Yeah. Encouraging. Yeah. I encourage it too. And that was actually, I want to say, you know, I'm maybe known for saying lots of critical things about different semin the seminary and whatnot, but, but that was one of the things that did attract me to Calvin seminary was, um, I had visited, I had narrowed it down to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary because I just, I really appreciate Al Moeller. So I'd went down, I visited that campus and, and then I went to Calvin Theological Seminary and visited and uh, the stark contrast, and I don't know what it is, but when I was at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I remember walking around the campus and thinking, boy, I'm like a 28, 29 year old guy with four kids and everybody at this school is like a 20 year old white kid like going to seminary, like it was just like a really young kid with no family. And, uh, and then I show up at Calvin seminary and everybody I visited with were like later, they had already worked a job. They're coming into ministry later. And I had people from China and Korea and Liberia. And I was like, wow, we've got like some older people who've done some life here and we've got some more diversity going on here. Um, that that makes me want to be a part of this. And, and it was a good fit. Most of the people I went through school with um, had been in ministry even for a little while or had been working a regular job and had a later call to ministry. And so um, I think that's a good thing in the CRC. I'd like to see it cultivated even more, I think. Yeah, and I, even the the seminary getting creative and making that, and I think, you know, combining, I, I hope that moving forward, like you said, the, the importance of internships, but partnering with making it, it, you know, possible for guys, for kids working a job difficult to, and I, I know the online component is going to really change this, but pairing that with, you know, a guy can keep working, whether it's in ministry or whether it's in construction or whatever, keep working, pair that with real solid internships under the guidance of, you know, this is where I think, I wish you could combine this with the the Presbyterian model where you come under the care of a, of a consistory. And mm -hmm. so you've got the partnership of a really good pastor under the care of the guidance of a local consistory to partner that with, you know, long-term 
kind of internship work while you're doing your academic studies. I think it could be a really powerful model for 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 preparation for ministry in the context of you know economic hardships and just changes in the world more broadly. Might those changes that are making it less likely for people to move to Grand Rapids to go to seminary might actually benefit yeah. ministry. I 100% think so. And, you know, we have tried to put some of those, um, those like, uh, boy, I'm losing my words, but oversight from like the, from a council and, you know, you have all these different mentors. And so they're, they're trying to get some of that tied into the local church and the local classes and, and all of that. But what, what I've seen happen is like the, some of the structures are there, but just functionally, we're not using them or we're not doing them well. Right. And so like, there's this desire and I've even heard, you know, I've heard Jewel Maidenblick say this multiple times over the past year, you know, he's, he's like, yeah, well, we're coming under a lot of fire here at the seminary, but you know, the churches need to be doing this work too. Like this just isn't us. And I'm like, I agree with you on that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing your job either, but I'm saying, yeah, right. We need to be doing this discipleship. And it kind of reminds me of a conversation I just had with a guy. Uh, he's an elder of a church uh, that I know pretty well. And and he was talking about his concern that their church, it sounds like a lot of CRC churches right now, right? They're getting older, members are starting to die off, and there's not this transfer to newer leadership. And then some of the, even the younger people in the church are um, are kind of leaving and kind of wandering off into progressivism and stuff. And he's wondering, like, what is going on? And and uh, it's just reminding me again, like as a as just a church in general at a local level, I think a number of churches have just failed that discipleship. Yeah. We've failed that discipling our young people. Like we've discipled them. You know, this church they had a pretty solid youth program, but then they got out of that, and then they had zero discipleship in the church after the youth program, and they just kind of were left like, well, you should be ready to go. And, uh, and then the cultural winds are so strong, it kind of pulled these kids away, right? Or, or when the, some leaders did rise up, you know, there was an older generation saying like, nah, we're not handing the reins off to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so yeah, yeah. like, but that's a discipleship issue too, right? Like there's, I've seen this in the church so many times where there, there's a group of older people and uh, they've been serving faithfully for so long, right? And they're starting to get wore out. They're starting to get tired out. And then they just say like, well, why isn't anybody taking over? And and I keep saying, why aren't you raising up somebody to take over for you? You know, instead of just saying, and then eventually what happens, they get tired, they get sick or something, and then the ball drops and then there's nobody ready to take over for it. And And then the church is left struggling. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yeah, so it's just this failure of discipleship, and I'd, I'd just love to see that happen better. And uh, I don't really know how to how to do it, but I mean, the reality is we just got to start doing it, right? Try to figure out the best way forward, and try to help raising up these young leaders in our churches, and and discipling young pastors too, and actually doing some of that work of um, walking alongside them and helping help them raise help raise them up to be able to shepherd the flock. So, yep. You know, and I, that might be a, a segue if I can take it. Mm-hmm. You you asked about my local community or the, the context of the local church. One of the things, my first call was to a church in upstate New York, and that was, that was a unique experience. It was a, a church that was kind of, you know, there were some Dutch, actually some first generation or actually 
themselves were immigrants, post-war immigrants, and then first generation. And then that was mixed with about half of the congregation was ex something else, ex Catholic, ex Baptist, whatever. And they had joined that church. But so that was a unique experience out in the de post Christian or whatever unchurched, dechurched New England kind of context. And then so I moved here. And one of the first things that I noticed was just the culture of particularly, oh, mid-20s, even early 20s, yeah, even the young, the young people, men and women, early 30s, how seriously they took their own faith development, but their role in the church. Mm-hmm. So Northwest Iowa, and I think it's not just unique to First Christian Reformed Church. I talked to the other pastors here in the Sioux Center area and Class of Syacota. There is a, a culture here that, and I don't know, you know, is this something where, yeah, the, and again, I've been here three years where the previous generations have not, I mean, they're still, they are themselves still serving faithfully, but they've created a culture in which the young people are empowered and enabled to take on leadership within the church and ownership within the church. So I've got these deacons who are set and ready to go. And they're excited. They're listening to the messy reformation. They're engaged in the life of the local church, the life of the denomination in a way that is just kind of mind boggling to me. And part of me is I'm still trying to myself figure out how in the world has this culture been created? Uh, So yeah, they're taking the the life of the church seriously. They're taking their role as the, that leg of in their parenting. They're taking that seriously. They're keeping their eyes on the other two legs saying we would need to make sure that the church is doing its job. We need to make sure that the school is doing its job. And I'm just flabbergasted at how incredible this is. I, I, it's something that obviously preexisted my arrival here, but I think, man, if I could figure it out and if we could export this across the denomination, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for it, but it's awesome. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah, that's uh, that's super encouraging. And uh, well, first, before I move on, how old is your church? How long has it been around? Uh, the church is over 100 years old. Okay. So yeah, first CRC Sioux Center. So, so yeah. that's, uh, so I'm, you know, I've mentioned it multiple times on, on this podcast, I'm kind of into this church revitalization thing. And uh, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of churches, not all of them that are 100 years old, but a lot of them that are 100 years old, have don't have the problem of this leadership thing because it was baked into the culture of their church which is why they survived to be 100 years old that that it somehow got in there and they got this pattern of discipleship and younger people engaged and and this kind of regular turnover of leadership and passing the baton that was there that's why they survived and uh and just this unique thing I was like, I probably want to, I don't know, along, probably when all my kids are out of the house, I'll think about writing a book, but I want to write a book about one of the things I've noticed as I've talked to people is the 40 year mark of a church is always like almost the death knell of a church. Almost every time, because the people that planted the church were in their thirties, they were passionate, they were, they had a vision. And then 40 years later, they're in their seventies, they're getting tired. They're like, I, but the baton has to be passed. And if they didn't do a good job of raising up the next generation, um, they either die 
or they go through a really strong period of struggle where somebody's got to kind of rebuild that church. But, uh, but the churches that make it through that 40 years, they just kind of keep going because they've got the DNA that that's been happening and, and they have this discipleship pattern happening. And so it's exciting to hear, cause yeah, you hear about all these other struggles, but it's exciting to hear churches like yours that do have, I, I know some of the guys in your church, you got some really solid young guys who are active and some of the churches in our area have that as well. And so, yeah, it's, but it's a reminder for all of us to, that we got to be thinking about that, right? We got to be thinking about not just the next generation, but the generation after that, even, and how we're, how we're doing church now. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, you know, that's a really interesting thesis that you've got there. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the other things that overlaps with that is the shift in, you know, if you think about churches about 40 years old, and we're thinking about churches right now that are about that age and some of the broader churches shifts in, in the way we think about church in American culture and the way the expectations of pastors being CEOs and really where you can get an overlap of the identity of the church really strongly tied to say that original church planter or whatever. And where that's baked into certain expectations about kind of thinking corporately about vision and mission and all of those things. Whereas with a church that's a hundred years old, it precedes a lot of that kind of conception of the church as a, as a business model or whatever. And it's just, nope, it's the church doing the church's business. You're doing catechesis, you're doing proclamation of the word and, and even in my case, you know, coming from a, a situation in upstate New York where it was predominantly, you know, the, the pastors, the head of council, the pastor is the one who's supposed to cast the vision. It, it, when that church was celebrated 50 years when I was there. But this church, it's, nope, it's the consistory. It's the council-led. They own it. I'm just a member of the council. I'm not the head of the council. So it really, and what that creates then is a sense in which the, the identity of the church is never tied to a single pastor. Amen. It, it has its, you know, it's like you said, that's baked in. The church is enabled to develop its own identity separate from pastors. Pastors can come and go and they might serve, some of them will serve better than others uh, by God's grace, whatever. <laughs> but mm-hmm. so, I, I mean, I think there's something to think about there. I like your thesis. I think you should develop that further and, and think about the ways those shifts have happened in American cult, church culture too, and the way they overlap there for better or for worse, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm, I'm kind of working on it, but it's not, I'm not, don't expect a book release date. I'm in the next probably decade. My kids are all the same ages as yours about. I, my oldest isn't a freshman in college and my youngest is a fifth grader. So I've got a while before I'm even really thinking about writing a book, but maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it, it's a good caution for us as we're uh, planting churches, right? Planting churches is kind of the rage. And I, I think that's a good thing we want to plant, but I think it's a it's a caution for us that when we plant, we need to plant well with a good kind of culture baked in. We can't, and a lot of church plants, I think, let's be honest, a lot of church plants take on the personality of the planter. And they're yeah. they're very kind of personality based. And even ones that are pretty successful, I can see, you know, seven, eight, ten years down the road, that pastor's still the pastor, and the church looks a lot like the pastor, and it's kind of about him. And, uh, and I think we need to be really cautious about that. But also then as, uh, as we rebuild, right? So I'm in a church that uh, we're in the process of rebuilding because at about the 40-year mark, guess what happened? Everything hit the fan and it tanked and it was really struggling for a while. And so we're now we're working to rebuild. 
and there's this temptation I can feel even in myself. Like I know what I want to do, but there's a temptation to kind of dive in and take hold of the reins and make stuff happen and get the church going. And, uh, and I keep reminding myself, no step back. Don't make it about you make the the church. And I've had to remind our church that like, if we're going to be a healthy church, it's not me that's going to make it happen. Like I'm here to kind of help. I'm teaching, I'm guiding, I'm shepherding. But, uh, but if we're going to be a healthy church, you guys have to take the reins and, and run with it and, uh, and get us to be a healthy church. And it's hard because we're, things happen really, really slowly. And you're like, ah, if I would just do this, it would be done like in a week, but we're going to take three months to do this. But, but again, you're, you got to look at that long game and think we're, we're building slowly so that we're building something that's going to last for, for the next hundred, 150 years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what, uh, so you've been in the CRC now, how long have you been a member of the Christian reform church now? Since 2008, when we moved to Canada. Okay, so 14, 15 years then. Yep. And so, what uh, what are some of the things you know? You were you were a delegate at this past synod, so you've been seeing. Well, you've been a delegate at a couple of synods, right? This yep. was your second. Yeah. So you've been kind of looking at the CRC from the outside, kind of not a not a pastor. Then you've been a pastor for a while. Then you've been into the belly of the beast at synod and got to see some of those inner workings. And so. Like, what are some of the new things that you're learning about the Christian Reformed Church just kind of having with your involvement? Yeah, well, maybe it is the belly of the beast, right? You you yeah. see it. And I yeah, your eyes get opened up to certain things as you go along and you realize what you were looking at wasn't quite what you were looking at. And some of that even is theological. Some of that's, you know, kind of reassessing some of the things you think theologically about Caprianism maybe, or, or being reformed or being reformational particularly. And I mean, I think for me, some of that's coming out the nuances between, or what you mean when you say reformational, uh, mm. even what you mean when you say reformed and always reforming those kinds of yeah. things. Uh, so, so realizing that there are at least two major strands there in the CRC and they're not necessarily going in the same direction. Um, but then yeah. realizing too, you know, um, yeah, there is, I, I think maybe one of the things that's my eyes have been opened up to recently, and people have talked about this with regards to the, the vote counts at Synod is kind of where I, I think the, the beating heart of the CRC is in a lot of these issues and then kind of what gets portrayed from all of the official mouthpieces and mm -hmm. the magazines and that kind of thing. So kind of realizing where the heart of the CRC is as opposed to where the portrayal is and then kind of navigating that. How do you, how do you, you know, navigate that and communicate that in the local context too? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I think that probably um, lies beneath the frustration that many people are feeling in the Christian Reformed Church as far as uh, members and pastors, those who are really frustrated with what's happening in the Christian Reformed Church are frustrated because um, what's coming from the denomination doesn't seem to be a representation of the reality of what's in the pew. And so it feels like there's this disconnect, right? It's almost like there's a disconnect between the body and the soul 
of, of a person happening in our denomination and people are like well what in the world i i don't think our our the people in the pew actually believe this way but everything coming out of the denomination seems to be kind of presenting this opposite this this other view even though um i just read uh i didn't read the whole thing yet i just i came across it literally like 2 minutes before we did this recording but uh, paul vanderclay had wrote an article and he said back in like 2016 they had um they had surveyed all of the pastors in the christian reformed church and 16% so 1 6 percent of the pastors in the crc were affirming so that was when 2016 16 okay so about six years ago so i haven't double checked to see where he got those numbers but that's what yeah. he said so i'll just trust that paul's not lying um but um so that's a small number but that's fairly like that's i mean even if he said push that number up to 20 percent, that's of still like one-fifth of the denomination and if you stretch that out into the pew, I bet it's probably less. I bet there are more affirming pastors than there are affirming percentage-wise than affirming members in the CRC. So we're talking a pretty small minority of people who are actually like full-out affirming. And yet, uh, you don't get that feel when you read when you read the banner or or listen to our podcasts that are coming out or any of that. And and that people are frustrated. I think people are frustrated because they don't know how to move forward either. Like, right. okay, what do we do? Like when, when the editor of the banner is writing things that are totally contrary to what our denomination holds, how do we, like, it sounds, I guess sounds bad, but whatever I'll say it. Like people are saying, how do we kick this guy out? Like we, he needs to be removed if he can't represent who we are. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, that's absolutely right. I think there, there is a frustration that you're, you're working against your own denomination or, or at least it's, um, you know, I, I've used the the language just to explain it. People like people talk about the deep state or whatever. It's like the CRC has a deep state, you know, a bureaucracy that's entrenched and that is actually opposed to the will of the vast majority of, of the members of the CRC. So what do you do when the people who hold the levers of power are working <laughs> against the best interests or at least the desires of the membership and certainly what we would view as the the best interests of the members and the our witness before the broader world so yeah I, that, I, that's a, that's a huge question i think that's a huge question that lies before us is what do you do when your your leadership is moving in the opposite direction that's all we have for this week stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with kurt monroe but until then don't forget this is christ church and he bought it with his blood And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Reach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.